Let us pray. Dear Lord, open our minds to the truth of your word by means of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to love him more and more. Open our will to do only what is righteous in your sight so that your name may be glorified. Enable us to hear your still small voice speaking in our hearts and open our eyes to see Jesus in every page of your word. Open the eyes of our hearts and show us more and more of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Old Testament lesson today is a scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. And if you want to read along, it's on page 682 of the Pew Bibles. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be rem remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. And one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food, shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke in the 21st chapter, uh, verses 5 through 19. So listen now for the word of God to the church. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? 
And Jesus said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear the wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not one hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So these are, I think we can all agree, difficult words from Jesus. They do not paint a pretty or happy picture of what disciples of Jesus Christ can expect from the world. They foretell challenge and suffering for everyone. It may feel to you like the world is burning down, Jesus says, but a precious gem is buried in the ashes. Despite desolation, there is hope. Despite the darkness, a light still shines. The lesson begins as Jesus and his followers are gazing upon the temple in Jerusalem. In that day, the temple was known far and wide as one of the most beautiful structures in the Roman Empire. And according to Jewish belief, the structure itself was indestructible. They believed that it would be protected and defended by God for all eternity. So it was a shocking turn when Jesus yanks the rug out from under that hope. All of this will come down, Jesus warns. Not one stone will be left upon another. It's as if Jesus is saying, do not put too much hope in what you see. From the wreckage of this broken dream, Jesus immediately points the way toward a new kind of hope, a hope that can and will endure through all kinds of challenge. This path will not be easy, Jesus says. It will take us down into a deep valley marked by political upheavals, famines, plagues, persecutions, trials, and prison cells. Some of you will die, Jesus says. All of you will be hated because of me, Jesus says. But you will never perish, Jesus says. Not in the end. By your endurance, Jesus promises you will gain your souls. Given the high states of, stakes of uh, walking this path, one thing Jesus says seems completely out of place, at least to me. All these bad things will happen to you, Jesus warns, but quote, make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. So as I read those words, the Boy Scout in me does a painful double take. 
The scouts in the room know what I'm talking about. The scout motto ingrained in every young scout is pretty widely known, be prepared. When camping, if the weather calls for cold temperatures, make sure to pack layers of clothing. Make sure your sleeping bag is rated for freezing temperatures. If rain is in the forecast, if rain is not in the forecast, take a poncho. Take waterproof bags to keep everything dry. Perhaps pack an extra pair of wool socks. In short, do your homework, know what is coming, and be prepared. So surely there was something that the disciples could have done, should have done, to prepare themselves for the rigors of this new path. If, for example, a military invasion is coming, perhaps some cross-training classes, right? So you can at least run fast or jump over some things if you needed to. If a famine's on the way, perhaps they could emulate the patriarch Joseph and store up some grain. But Jesus essentially says, nah, just wing it. Don't bother preparing anything in advance. And it seems like pretty bad advice, but Jesus resurrects it with a key promise. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, Jesus says, for I will give you words. I will give you a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or to contradict. In the months leading up to our wedding, Stephanie and I went to her hometown to visit her mom and dad. And during that visit, I went with Stephanie's dad to their home church. It was a, and is a small Methodist congregation. It's yoked to three other congregations, which meant that the one pastor had four churches to serve. And what he would do is he would go to two congregations on one Sunday, and then he would go to the other two on the next Sunday and alternate that way. And it was a lot for one person. So the church had adopted a practice to kind of help him out. I don't know how they did it, but it was how often they did it. But it was a fairly regular thing that they would designate one particular Sunday for sermon in a bag. Now, what sermon in a bag was is that one of the members in the church, whoever had that duty on that particular Sunday, would choose an item an ordinary thing that they might find in the house or in the office, and they would place that thing in a brown lunch bag. And then they would roll it up like it had lunch in it. And at the time when the sermon was coming up in the sermon, that person would stand up, walk to the front, hand the bag to the preacher. He would open the bag, pull out the item, take a moment to collect himself, and I anticipate, pray very fervently... And then he would launch into a 15 or 20 minute sermon on whatever was in that bag. So the week I went, the item was a sharpened pencil. So I have to say, given what he had to work with, that pastor just crushed it. I mean, it was awesome. He had not prepared a single word, but God still gave him words and wisdom that got him through that sermon. Praying for the right words is something that the people of God have always done. The Apostle Paul certainly did it. He even asked the whole church in Ephesus to pray such a prayer for him. Pray also for me, he wrote, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. 
In the same way, the prophet Jeremiah, when he was first called to be a prophet to the nations, asked God to find someone else. He just didn't believe he had either the words or the wisdom to preach and to share. Ah, Lord God, he lamented, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But God pushed him onward, saying, You shall go to all to whom I send you. You shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. God then put out the divine hand, touched Jeremiah on the mouth, and said, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. From there on out, through suffering and calm, Jeremiah was always given the words and the wisdom to be a prophet of God. It's a powerful prayer, one that I expect you have probably prayed at some time in your life, God, give me the words. We usually pray it when circumstances seem particularly dire, when we feel especially helpless or inadequate to meet a challenge. God, this seems too big for me. God, I want to say the right thing in this situation, but I have no idea what to say. Please give me the words. In 1957, at the height of the Cold War, a Dutchman by the name of Andrew Vanderbilt pulled his blue Volkswagen up to the security checkpoint. He was about to drive into Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia's leaders were highly suspicious of anyone or anything coming into their country. Printed materials were especially likely to be confiscated because the regime didn't want any foreign propaganda coming in. Two guards with automatic weapons quickly approached Andrew's vehicle, and as they came closer, Brother Andrew, as many now call him, began to pray. In the corners of his luggage, in the pockets of his folded shirts, in between the seat cushions, and anywhere else he could think of, he had stashed Bibles, written tracts and stories of the good news of Jesus Christ. If they were found, he would spend the rest of his life in prison. But he knew that on the other side of this checkpoint were people who craved the word of God, and he had made a promise that he would bring it to them. So in this critical moment, Brother Andrew prayed, Lord, you know what I have in my luggage. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray you will make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things that you do not want them to see, and please, Lord, give me the words. One of the guards went directly to his camping gear in the deeper folds of his sleeping bag. At the bottom of his tent bag were boxes full of Bibles. Do you have anything to declare, the other guard asked. Brother Andrew reached for the words, and he found a list that he had no intent of finishing. I have money, he said, and a wristwatch, and a camera, 
And as he spoke, he looked as the other guard walked around and opened the trunk and pulled out his suitcase. He placed it down on the ground and opened it up and started pulling shirts out. And Brother Andrew watched in horror as the guard picked up several shirts, leaving fully exposed a stack of gospel tracts printed in Croatian and Slovenian. There they were in the full sunlight. And God then offered him some more words, and God, as we might expect, was completely chill. (laughs) It seems dry for this time of year, Brother Andrew said. The weather seemed like a safe topic, but then he dared to look in the mirror at the other guard and saw that that guard had become completely distracted. He was literally just gazing up off into space. And something let him know that Brother Andrew's eyes were on him. And when he realized that, he quickly dropped the shirts back down into the suitcase, covering the Bibles back up. The first guard continued, do you have anything else to declare? Another moment for prayer, Lord, give me the words. Only small things, Brother Andrew replied. We won't bother with them, the guard concluded, and he motioned to the other guard to load that suitcase back up and close the trunk, and with a weak salute, he handed Brother Andrew his passport and opened the gate. The beloved writer C.S. Lewis also prayed for words. He was under a different kind of pressure. Lewis had grown very concerned about the words that were being used to teach the gospel, especially, it seems, in Sunday school. In countless Sunday school classes, he had cringed at how what he called the watchful dragons of Christianity would punish students for using the wrong words. And he had seen the mental blinds drop down on the faces of those students the moment they turned to speaking about faith. What if he thought the gospel could be more subtly smuggled into people's minds? What if the eternal truths of Christian faith could be disguised a bit, perhaps using different stories and different words? Stories of intrigue and daring do had always captured the hearts and minds of the people. I saw and thought how stories of this kind, Lewis wrote, could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. That by casting Christian truths into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make for the first time, make them appear for the first time in their real potency. Could one not by doing so, he said, steal past those watchful dragons? Lewis was pretty sure he was on to something. He was pretty sure that if he could tell the gospel using new stories, new characters, having new adventures, then the people might finally understand what the gospel story really meant. Not in lofty theological language, but in the real language of our streets and our schools and our living rooms and our kitchens. He prayed that age-old prayer, God, give me the words. And then he sat down to write about a land called Narnia, featuring four disciples who were not Galilean fishermen, but English schoolchildren from war-torn London. And still today, the chronicles of Narnia continue to bring thousands to the gospel of Jesus Christ using just the right words to make it come alive. 
I myself have prayed this prayer countless times. One instance that comes immediately to mind is a prayer service that was called after a high school football player was paralyzed from the neck down when a tackle hit just wrong. Three local pastors were invited to come and pray at the service. The entire school community came out looking for hope. His family all showed up, all just wanting him to walk again. The school administrators wanted to comfort a grieving community. The classmates of the school were facing many for the first time just how cruel life can be, and I had absolutely no idea what to say to them. I worried that the comfort that I had to offer from Scripture was not the comfort that these people wanted to hear, so I prayed, God, give me the words. When I presided over the funeral of a church member who had committed suicide, leaving two children, a long-suffering wife, and a mother who feared for the soul of her dead son, I prayed, God, give me the words. In hospital rooms, sitting with people who have just received a devastating diagnosis, I have prayed, God, give me the words. As I prepared this sermon listening to a report of yet another school shooting, knowing that young people in our own community wonder what might happen to them at school, I prayed, God, give me the words. And when you have faced situations that seemed so painful, so confusing, so fraught with peril, I expect that you too have prayed, God, I feel like I am in over my head. Please give me the words. These are the moments when that precious gem can be seen in the ashes of whatever fire you are walking through, when a gentle breeze brushes over the ground to reveal this glimmering promise. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words. I will give you a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Yes, you are in danger. Yes, you may even be over your head, but not a hair of your head will perish. Leslie Weatherhead, the well-known British preacher and writer, described the feeling of that kind of moment this way. I have come home from some meetings thoroughly tired and disappointed and disillusioned. I have settled down in an armchair with bitterness in my veins instead of blood. I was too tired to pray, too tired to stir up any desire to pray, and then I tried an experiment. I relaxed the body and relaxed the mind, left, as it were, the door of the mind ajar. There was very little more than a vague longing for the coming of the friend that friend who understands, who understands our worst moments without losing belief in our best. And then something happened. The peace which is indescribable flooded the whole spirit. A hush which is ineffable quieted the mind. And there is only one explanation of such an experience. God's greatest gift to men was given and accepted, the friend came. 
when life is at its most difficult, when you feel like circumstances are closing in, when you fear that you have no idea how to take the next step, you can still crack the door of your mind and spirit ajar and you can pray that powerful age-old plea, God, give me the words. And the friend will come. He will give you the words and a wisdom that cannot fail. And not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your souls. Thanks be to God. Amen.